One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease talk and researcher. Happy New Year. Happy oh. New Year. No, happy, happy New Year. Listen, however you chose to spend it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, spending it? No, that's not true. I'm, I'm fully clothed. Well, I know we just came off our, our holiday episode, as well as our vaccine one. Listen to that. But I had so much fun going into our differential diagnosis of of a Scrooge, not McDuck, mm. Ebenezer, wow. that I decided I would uh, bring back one of our topics and do another one of my favorite segments. So do you know what we're doing this week, Santosh? Um, are we traversing the globe? We might be. It's time for another <laughs> Around the World in 80 Plagues. Oh, I didn't reach the mute button in time. <laughs> Never. Never going to allow it. It hurts so much. <laughs> so for those folks who haven't bothered to look at the show notes or the title of the episode, Santosh, what's behind plague door number one today? <laughs> so we're actually, cause this, this is traditionally an infectious diseases platform of, you know, what to do around here. And this has been a little bit different. This one is not an infectious diseases platform. This one's going to be a, poisoning or a toxicology forum we're going to talk about 
ergotism, as in I eat. Yeah. Ergo, I'm sick. <laughs> oh, you stole it. But yeah, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna get all up in there. But yeah, yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm really, really excited to hear about all this. I thought I knew my food poisonings pretty well. I actually have an amazing book which I'm reading through right now called infections of leisure <laughs> which have uh, all kinds of um chapters like um from shore to sea and from the oh what was it it was from the powder room to the bordello and so each of those chapters have something to do with like how all the ways that you can get sick with infections by having fun and there's a pretty decent chapter in there about like hey this is what you can eat and die from and poison from but learning about this ergo poisoning was pretty damn cool so let's talk a little bit about ergo poisoning well it's very known and associated with a specific saint and that's saint anthony so i'm going to throw a little bit of everything i love into this episode let's talk about saint anthony a third century egyptian aesthetic <laughs> wait what oh as in so he was third century so he was Christian, like Coptic, but he was from Egypt. Right. He was St. Anthony of the Desert. And the reason I'm talking about him is okay. he was known for long fasting, where he confronted terrible visions and temptations. He's a pretty popular subject for art in the Middle Ages. In fact, go ahead and look up the painting Temptation of St. Anthony by Matthias Grudenwald. We'll come back to that. All right. Okay. And I'm Googling as you talk. His symbol was a large blue T sewn onto the shoulder of his order's monks that symbolized the crutch used by the ill and injured. And it's really interesting. It wasn't a T for his name like, hey, St. Tony. Hey, Tony. Hey, what order are you in? I'm in Tony's order. Can't you see? Hey. <laughs> hey. So, But still being Egyptian somehow? <laughs> right, right. I, I, well, you know, the New Jersey part of Egypt. <laughs> Did you find that painting? Dude, this thing is a friggin' trip. <laughs> so I can I can verbally, uh, you know, audiologically kind of describe it. There, when you start from the right hand side of the painting, it looks pretty simple. There, it's dark. There's a beautiful tree, although there's like a jug pouring out of it, and there's then there's a guy and a girl sitting underneath it. But then there's like these little these demons and stuff like there's a demon riding a pig and then you move all the way over to the left and it's a beach it's going into like a lake or an ocean and there's a giant heed there's just a huge heed <laughs> as big as a man and with the mouth is open and there's people climbing in and out of it um and his head is open josh his head is open and there's like people crawling out and a pair of swans or geese uh, and uh, and a scroll on top of there with maybe a pair of glasses. There's a lot going on here, dude. This is weird. Did I find the right thing? Did you find the Hieronymus Bosch one, the Salvador Dali one, or the one oh. by Matthias Grunwald? Oh, oh gosh. I didn't realize there were so many. Okay. Yeah, these are all surrealistic. There's another one. Is this a platypus? Is there's a there's a naked dude holding up a cross, and in front of him there's spindly legged like creatures kind of coming out of the distance. There's a horsey and an elephant with a naked woman on top, and then another elephant with a triangle that contains a bunch of so spheres. Dude, this is so weird. 
So it's it's a real fun. It's just a fun Google search image Holy search. God, oh, here's no matter Josh who. Wood. These are all trippy. What is up with this guy? So all of these are various depictions of the suffering St. Anthony was subject to. And the important thing is that we're going to talk about the disease for which he is best known, St. Anthony's fire. Oh, this is different from St. Elmo's fire. Correct. So St. Anthony's fire caused by the consumption of ergo. Uh, got its name, the disease got its name from a hospital in Vienna, founded around 1100, whose patron was St. Anthony, because two noblemen were traveling, got this disease, and they managed to recover and credited this saint for it. They then founded the Order of St. Anthony in honor of him, and the hospital they founded became a pilgrimage center for all those afflicted with St. Anthony's fire. So most... Most depictions of St. Anthony in the church have his followers missing limbs or with burning limbs, and it is one of the two main kinds of ergotism, gangrenous and convulsive. Now, I'm going to tell you just a teeny bit more about the order of St. Anthony to the actual disease. Yeah, we got to because, dude, all of these are – okay, this one with Shongauer, he's – in the sky and he looks like he's being like ripped apart by various demons it looks like they're all depicting him high as balls because there's no way that this stuff is real like he's tripping well if you recall from our ebenezer scrooge episode yeah if you consume ergo fungus there are a few hallucinogenic alkaloids in it dude this is not a few <laughs> <laughs> so the theory being that the those who suffered St. Anthony's fire felt burning, but as St. Anthony's fire was caused by ergo, uh, mm-hmm. the ergo fungus, and it can also cause hallucinations as well as vasoconstriction, some of the people suffering from this may have been tripping balls. Oh, gotcha. The Order of St. Anthony, who were colloquially known as the Antonites, great band name. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hello, France, Germany, and Scandinavia. We are um, the Antonites. But this, they really spread throughout all of Europe and, you know, powerful and grateful patrons bestowed money and charitable goods. By the end of the Middle Ages, there were 396 settlements and 372 hospitals owned by the order and pilgrimages to the hospitals of St. Anthony became popular as well as, and this is my favorite part, the donation of limbs lost to ergotism. Oh, come on. (laughs) This is like when we were talking about fun, like drinks and food during travel. And you remember that, like we talked about the place, I think it's in Alaska where you can donate a a frostbitten toe to actually like, you can donate the toe to, to go into that, like the, the liquor that has the toe in it. No, no, no. Well, I mean, you can donate a toe, but that's not required. (laughs) No, I, I mean, it seems it's not required here too. It's just like, Oh, by the way, no, you know, just in our in our toe loss one, it was Go ahead. there's a jar of alcohol with a toe in it, and whenever they run out of a toe, they look around for new ones. This was, honey, how should I thank those nice priests who healed us? Send them your leg. <laughs> no, he'll love it. He'll he'll get you right into heaven. <laughs> that treatment cost an arm and a leg. 
Uh, (laughs) Well, to be fair, this one wasn't the treatment. This was actually the disease cost me an arm or a leg. So the donation of limbs lost to the disease would be displayed near shrines to the saint. So these therapeutic centers really were the very first specialized European medical welfare systems. And friars of the order were very, very knowledgeable about treatment of the disease for the time. And when I say knowledgeable, I mean, they're doing a lot of the things that we would do now. Anybody who showed up at these treatment centers would receive ergo-free meals, Mm -hmm. wines that had wines that had vasodilating and analgesic herbs okay so like your your red wines and stuff that would make you flush Mm -hmm. sure okay and applications of a of an ointment called antonite balsam which was the first transdermal therapeutic system in medical history unfortunately the recipe has been lost to time and after 1130 AD, the monks, although they were very skilled and qualified, for whatever reason, they were no longer permitted to perform operations on people suffering from St. Anthony's fire. And so <laughs> instead, instead, the monks kept treating it, but they employed barber surgeons to remove gangrenous limbs and treat open sores, which I read as the very first locums or independent physician group. <laughs> so Because they'd come in... You know, hey, we need people here, you know, go, go ahead and, you know, just come on in and we'll, we'll treat you, how, we'll teach you how to treat this specific thinger. That, that's pretty awesome. I like that. Now let's talk a little bit about these because there were a ton of these epidemics throughout the time. So Santosh, yeah. what can you tell me just about ergo as a fungus? To begin? I think it may fall under one of your favorite types of fungus, which you newly discovered just maybe at the end of last year. Is it, it may be a type of smut fungus, if I'm correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. worry, folks. We'll talk about smut later, and it yeah. will be safe for work. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, this is a type of fungus that does grow pretty much everywhere there's soil. And it, as long as it has kind of a, a carbon source to kind of latch onto, so in this case, I think it's rye or barley or something like that, because those seeds, uh, the reason we consume them, of course, is because they're an energy-rich source. When we eat them, of course, we bite them, you know, it dissolves in our stomach acids, and then, you know, we extract it that way. A fungus will still seek that carbon source, those carbohydrates and everything else, but it will land on there and then start to decompose the grain. And so if you didn't have a good way to store a lot of the grain that you were harvesting, and if you had the right type of climate and everything, this fungus would be around, but it would overgrow. And it started to metabolize the energy that it was getting from uh, you know, whatever it was that uh, that was around, it was the grain or something else like that, it would start to putrefy it. And one of the interesting things that it has evolved to do is start secreting this toxin that we're going to talk about, ergotoxin. And the nice thing about that is if the fungus does its job and it, it secretes this toxin and there aren't, let's say, you know, like a bunch of idiotic humans around that are like, uh, I'll I'll eat it anyway. <laughs> and instead there are animals that smell it and be like, um, I'm not going to eat that. Then 
the animal gets a signal automatically that this is rotted. And if I eat this, I'll die or I'll lose a limb or I'll go insane and crazy. So I will avoid eating it. And that way the fungus gets to keep the rye as a carbon source and can keep feeding off of it. And so it kind of preserves the food for itself by poisoning it for everybody else, if that makes sense. Yeah. So with regards to the ergotoxin, it's a vasoconstrictor, which means it shrinks and narrows your blood vessels. So as we know, uh, the ergotoxin is a vasoconstrictor, which Mm -hmm. causes your blood vessels to narrow, but constant and prolonged exposure to this fungus causes an extreme effect. It severely limits blood flow to the extremities, shutting down all those uh, all those pathways. And this can result in symptoms that vary from, you know, shedding a few nails to the aforementioned losing one's limbs. And as you can imagine, this is not terribly pleasant and it's often quite painful. Yeah. And this is why, like, you know, if you have a cow or a deer or something that's looking for something to eat and it senses this, you know, if it smells, because it doesn't, you know, the, the, the rest of it, aside from the poison itself, like this is rotting food. It stinks. So an animal and, it, you know, even if it's starving, it's going to look at this and it's either going to know that I have to stop eating this or it's going to see like one of its pack with like a limb off or dead and it's going to get the hint that, like, I, I should not be eating this. <laughs> well, as the disease progresses, people experience extremely painful feelings of intense heat in the limbs. That's why it was called Holy Fire or St. Anthony's Fire. Right. Several weeks after reaching that Holy Fire point, which would be, again, prolonged exposure to the fungus, the limbs would simply dry up, turn black, and fall off without any pain. But the stench of rotting flesh was terrible yeah that's and uh, i mean it's it's brilliant right evolutionarily speaking like if you're an organism and you're like this rye is mine now you just do everything you can to just be like listen if you touch this you're gonna you're toast the disease was most prevalent west of the Rhine River in France, but the first recorded outbreak, and there have been several, which is why it's one of our 80 plagues, mm-hmm. was in Germany in 857 AD. And in major outbreaks, death rates of this disease were around 10 to 20%. That is Whoa. huge. And it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because this is, it's very fast acting. And I'm guessing that you would only eat it you know, the grain that was poisoned with this stuff, like if you were desperate, right? So quite, quite the contrary. Here's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People didn't know that this was a disease initially. So there was no understanding of where these outbreaks came from. But looking back through hindsight, uh, a huge place, France and Germany got hit with this over and over and over again. And what is now France was the center of many of the most severe epidemics because rye was the staple crop of the poor. And the cool, wet climate is very conducive for the development of mold, fungus, and therefore ergo. Ergo, ergo showed up. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, this is so dumb. Like, there's, there's so many classic things here which allow for any type of mammal that normally eats grain 
to realize that like you shouldn't be eating this, but we human beings are just like, let's power through. Well, we powered through because literally that's the only grain that people could grow. So if your rye crop got infected, you're like, well, I can eat maybe some of this rye that's been milled and be okay, or I can starve to death. Yeah, these are people who all they're eating is bread and cheese, you know, because France. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the bread and when the bread is infected, that's half your food right there. Sure, so, sure, sure, sure. I, but okay, gotcha. So I'm either going to suffer some horrible side effects from this, um, or I'm just plain going to die. And hopefully, which, again, on the you're giving you're giving too much credit, Santosh. It was okay. not discovered that this was a grain-based disease, they didn't know what ergo was. They just knew that occasionally you'd get sick from these, you know, and once in a while it may be associated with your spoiled crop. It may not. There was no connection between the two, between eating the bad crop, the spoiled crop, and St. Anthony's fire developing. Totally not understood until the Antonites came by and said, well, we know something with this grain so we're just going to make sure we don't use any diseased grain when we feed you oh so okay so at that point they knew right because the regular rye grain and the hard purplish black grain-like ergo produced by the fungus would often be harvested and ground together during milling because if you're looking for it it's an easy fungus to notice it's a dark spot a little bit of smut but <laughs> but if you're not on the lookout for smut, it's very easy to miss it. And then this would be mixed into and milled and powdered. And if you send out a bunch of flour to the local populace that's been mixed with this, they'll get it in varying degrees depending on what they're using that flour for. Because the flour produced would be contaminated with the toxic alkaloids in the, of the fungus. So you don't know where, you, you know, you go to your Whole Foods or your Trader Joe's or your... Vons or whatever market is, and you buy a bag of flour. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's got a whole bunch of LSD and ergo sitting in it, and you have no way of knowing because you only have your one local baker. For example, in 944 AD in southern France, 40,000 people died of ergotism. Whoa. Okay. So, but, and, and this was still in the time of like, we don't know why we're dying, but we're dying. I mean, there had to have been some kind of a hint of like, this stuff stinks or, you know, this stuff is gross. Any of that? So remember, 857 AD was the German outbreak, I told you. 10 to 20% death rate. 957 or 944 AD in southern France, 40,000 people died. The Order of St. Anthony was founded around 1100. And after 1130, the monks had to outsource surgery to the barbers. So there was a long period of time when we don't really know how much of this disease was understood. But with 40,000 people dying, the answer is probably not a lot. So we talked about how rye was the staple crop of the poor. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, this may have affected European history because outbreaks continued to occur throughout Switzerland, Germany, and France, but not England, as the main source of food in England at the time was wheat. And wheat is resistant to ergo, whereas rye and barley are not. Nice. Okay, gotcha. So, you know, the British Empire may have risen because everybody else was too busy tripping and losing limbs to infected rye. 
uh, which is what most of their medieval peasants and even nobility were eating. We're eating. And and so it really just depended on dose and whether someone was kind of smart enough to separate the uh, the black grains from the regular one. So let's talk about when people started becoming smart enough, because ergos are so commonly associated with the rye plant that they were included in early botanical drawings of the species. But in 1670, a French physician, Dr. Thulier, put forth the concept that it was not an infectious disease, but the consumption of infected food responsible for the outbreaks. 1670, 500 years later that somebody's starting to say, maybe this isn't a disease that spreads to people, but it's due to infected food. Something that the Antonite monks had already started to get a handle on back in the 1100s. Sure, sure. And this, you know, we're still before, you know, or no, sorry, we're in the midst of germ theory, right? We're like kind of uh, as it's rising up. We're, we're still predating germ theory a little bit. Uh, 1670, okay. 1670, we're in the midst of it. Um, yeah, yeah. It was around the, around the 17, 1800s, it really started to take off. Yeah. So this is, you know, there's still a, an observation previously, like 500 years previously, that like, hey, this is the cause. I don't know what it is about this stuff. But we know this is the cause. Now, you know, they're they're putting a kind of a name to it, like a, an actual a reason for why this is the cause for St. Anthony's fire. Interestingly, what helped was, again, the population density that of who was getting infected. So, again, late 1600s, Dr. Thulier recognized here's how it was different from traditional infectious diseases from which he was familiar Unlike those diseases, ergotism was not common in urban areas where population density was great and conditions were unsanitary, but seen far more often in rural areas among the poor. So the opposite of gout, whereas gout was a disease of the rich, uh, ergotism or St. Anthony's fire was a disease of the poor and rural. It also didn't seem to be contagious since it might strike only one member of a family and not the others, or sometimes an entire family had the malady, but their neighbors may not be sick. And some victims could live in isolation for months, but would still get the disease. Right. Gotcha. And that makes sense because it's a little bit like um, uh, the current respiratory virus that we're going under, depending on your inoculum. So how much you actually take in and then how your body handles it and processes the toxin, how well it was cooked, all these kind of different things from person to person, it could affect you a bit differently. And you you wouldn't be able to intuitively pin it on that, like, oh, we all ate this thing and we all got the same outcome. Well, he started to try because the strangest feature of this disease that Dr. Thulier observed was it appeared money could buy your freedom from St. Anthony's fire since the rich did not contract the disease. Epidemiology! So his... His uh, thought process from that was not the rich must just be better, but instead, <laughs> let that's them eat a, cake. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's that's actually fair. <laughs> it's like there's that that would have been an intuitive thing because for a long time, like it was a religious uh, or or kind of cultural belief that like 
you know, you're, you're a better human being. That's why you got to be rich. So I, I, sorry, I, I shouldn't take it so blithely, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So he believed the disease because money could buy your way out of it. He thought the symptoms that arose must have something to do with the victim's environment. So he could immediately eliminate certain causes. It seemed unlikely that fresh country air and sunshine could be responsible for the disease. And, and country and city folks by and large drank from most of the same sources of water. So he said this has to be due to their diet. And this this started the overall process of much more rapid discovery. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it's kind of neat how that happens of, you know, just like you were saying, there was knowledge uh, 500 years before there was an intuition. And then, you know, there were people kind of accruing knowledge and studying it and thinking about it. But it it's kind of neat where all of it kind of hits a tipping point, just like how you say, and then all of a sudden like a floodgate opens. I love that process of discovery. That's super cool. So, and, and even though we've been calling it St. Anthony's fire, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about where the word ergo actually comes from, because I haven't done some medical etymology in a while. (laughs) Do it. Ergo. E-R-G-O-T, derives from the Latin word articulum, articulation or joint, via the Old French argo, A-R-G-O-T. And argo is a cockspur, which suggested the shape of the fungus, as people in France noted a resemblance between the little dark fungus sclerotia and the spurs on rooster legs. Oh, neat. So this was microscopically... No, you can see the actual fungus that grows on rye is a small dark. I mean, it's small, but it's visible to the naked eye. And it looked like the little spur on the back of a rooster leg. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, that's really cool. And You're not kidding. Yeah, there it is. Poing. Yeah, okay. Got it. So the person who named this this fungus after rooster legs was uh-huh. Dennis Dodart, who reported the relation between bread poisoning and this fungus ergo in a letter to the French Royal Academy of Sciences in 1676. So 1670, Dr. Thulier starts to understand this may be something to deal with their diet. People take a closer look at what the Antonites had done over the Middle Ages, decide that or discover that it's due to this dark, smutty fungus <laughs> hanging out on rye, they sure. realize that the fungus looks a lot like the back of a rooster leg, give it the name ergo, and say bread poisoning. <laughs> nice. Now, I got to say, Josh, so I didn't understand before. I thought this was like kind of a rotting fungus that was quite obvious and therefore like it was avoidable. Um, I should correct myself in front of our listeners. This looks kind of like maybe a seed pod has opened up and the like the seed in the middle of the the wheat husk has just gone off a little bit. Like it's, you know, in the early stages, it doesn't look too, too horrible. So I can kind of understand. And then it doesn't infect every single seed pod on a stalk. It it kind of, um, you know, it skips a few. So like if you didn't go through and pull out every single one of these little black uh, seed looking things, then you're right. You'd, you'd either end up throwing away the entire stalk, in which case you'd starve, 
Um, or, you know, a couple of these in because the, the poison dose isn't too high that you need, right, to get sick. Um, or you, you know, you'd go ahead and, and ingest it and <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's a prolonged exposure or a concentration exposure. So if you only had a small amount of contamination in your rye, you sure. might get a little bit of twinges or burns or okay. you might get a little bit dizzy, but you'd be fine. Whereas if you got a bad batch you could literally die. In 1722, Russian Tsar Peter the Great had to stop his campaign against the Ottoman Empire as his army got ergotism and were forced to retreat to find edible grains. And a diary entry describes as soon as people ate the poisoned bread, they became dizzy with such strong contractions that those who didn't die from the first day found their hands and feet falling off like frostbite. Wow. So I mean, do you knew. think that like in the midst of fighting the Ottomans, he had to like stop and put his feet up? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the problem is because this is a toxin, it's a real grab bag about how severe your symptoms will be when you consume it. And people gotcha. still were assuming that even though they had discovered the ergo fungus, they still thought if you see this on rye at all, you have to throw out the whole batch of rye. So in the modern sense, now, this was all the way up through the 1600s, the 1700s, the golden age of piracy. And Mm -hmm. then we get into Victorian times. And that's when we finally got Louis Tulane, an early mycologist and illustrator, botanist, worked Mm -hmm. out (laughs) the life cycle for Ergo. And in his examination of the rye flower, he discovered and concluded that the Ergo was a fungus growing on the inconspicuous flower of the rye and the fungus and not the rye itself was the culprit. Oh, nice. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so so most uh, people till this time thought, Oh, you see this dark thing, the whole rye is infected. And he's like, no, 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 this is a separate plant that grows on the, on the rye and it's an overwintering stage. God. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, His discovery, while helpful, still didn't change management too much, as documented epidemics in the 1800s had a mortality rate of around 40%. Oh, Oh. and I'm guessing that aside from mortality, we probably had a high morbidity rate amongst the survivors of like losing fingers, limbs, or going crazy? Yes, and that's because even after the cause of ergotism was known, so once they had you know, we're, we're in the 1800s and listen, contaminated rye with this fungus is causing this disease and you can avoid it by not eating the rye. However, many poor people did not have alternative food sources in years when the rye was severe. What would make a severe rye crop? The same things that would make a terrible harvest, wet climate, uh, cold winters, poor, you know, poor general growing conditions were great for ergo, terrible for food. So a ton of lives were probably saved by the adoption of the potato. Potato! Until because, there was a famine and it got wiped out. <laughs> well, well, that was for Ireland. But as the potato became a peasant staple throughout Europe, production of rye and therefore ergo declined because ergo doesn't grow on potatoes. They grow under the ground. Sure. Okay. Not, oh, got it, got it, got it. So this is not one of these fun guys – where you'd um, you'd see them like kind of living, uh, you know, 
sending their spores into the soil and everything. This one, the the seed pod had to be exposed up top. It was in the overwintering stage, so right before it started to flower. Got it, got it. So in in the period, because you'd want to harvest these these grains before they flower. Got it. Okay. Um, so women who, who ate this, and this is going to talk about how we're almost done with the disease part and we'll talk about it as a treatment. But when ergotism occurred in lactating women, the ergo alkaloid, ergocryptine can inhibit prolactin production and release from the anterior pituitary gland. So women, lactating women who would eat this would stop producing milk. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And because they couldn't produce milk, they had to go back to one of my other favorite stories, nanny goats. <laughs> that is one of your favorites, isn't it? With the <laughs> Santos, do you realize how much of how many of my loves this this episode is pulling together? <laughs> I love that this is the <laughs> the one. It's the nanny goats. Yeah, for for those who uh, please do go back and look through. I'm sure you could search for nanny goats in our episodes, but the the quick hit is for those societies and agricultural societies where they were not able to nurse, the mothers couldn't nurse. You could actually just put the baby on the teat of a goat, and the goat would be completely cool. With it. And the baby would actually get quite nutritious milk with, I think they were missing folate though, right? Well, they were, but several French hospitals had goat wards in the ICU, in the NICU. like babies the, would be born and mothers who couldn't produce milk or who's wet, or they didn't have access to sufficient wet nurses yeah. uh, because of disease like tuberculosis or city things would take their kids out to the country and a goat would be their milk nanny. Uh, but that's, that's <laughs> neither here nor there. It just may have been... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. So before we talk about the last known example of ergotism or the last known outbreak, because fewer outbreaks occurred since Rye has been carefully monitored in developed countries in the 19th century and onward, mm-hmm. um, there's two kinds of ergotism or two, two distinct presentations. And it, you'll usually see in an outbreak one or the other. It's very, very rare to have both. Okay. The main one we've been talking about is gangrenous. You get holy fire, vasoconstriction, uh, the limbs shriveling up from lack of blood supply, dying and falling off. The other kind is convulsive. And the convulsive, you could eat the rye and get seizures, hallucinations, psychotic breaks. And that's a lot more in tune with what you were probably thinking of as ergotism and its potential involvement in the Salem witch trials. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. This, this is the going crazy part. Right. So vomiting, diarrhea, general lethargy, a sensation of ants or bugs crawling over the body, twitching, epilepsy-like seizures and blindness. These are because of the Ergo alkaloids, ergine and lysergic acid. That's right, LSD. There you go. Got it, got it. Okay. So let's talk about the last known example that occurred August 12th, 1951. On that day, Jean Vieux, a medical doctor in the tiny little town of Pont Saint Esprit in uh, Provence, France, and don't at me with the pronunciations, I don't care. <laughs> Uh, there wasn't so, one right. <laughs> I know. Pont Saint Esprit. 
in Provence. <laughs> People who care about pronunciation came to the wrong show. <laughs> but this doctor was the first to discover an outbreak while puzzling over two cases of patients who were just complaining of a lot of belly pain in the lower abdomen. Initially, mm-hmm. he thought it was appendicitis, but none of the symptoms that his patients had were consistent with that. They included low body temperatures and very cold fingertips, as well as wild babbling and hallucinations. By the 13th, a day later, he had a third patient with these symptoms, and he met with a couple other doctors and said, have you guys seen this hallucinatory appendicitis? And between his two friends, they had 20 patients with the symptoms described. By August 14th, the hospital became filled with patients with the same symptoms, and 70 homes were repurposed as emergency wards. Oh, okay. Got it, got it. And the reason they had to repurpose these homes is because unless victims were tied to their beds, those that escaped went running mad, frantic, and in one case naked through the streets. All all available straitjackets were rushed to the town to restrain the victims of this sickness. And if if people weren't terrified by this time, they became so when there was a report of a demented 11-year-old boy who, while hallucinating, tried to strangle his own mother. This must have felt like a Walking Dead episode. (laughs) That's so, yeah, that's kind of scary. So the doctors working diligently to discover the cause of this mass dementia, they they were convinced it was some sort of food poisoning. So the epidemiologist had been hard at work. But what had all these people consumed? The doctors went house to house, just like in that show, House. <laughs> Who th- those those guys didn't go house to house. They stayed. Uh, listen, if you watched House through multiple episodes, they broke into way more people's <laughs> places. That's fair. That's entirely fair. You're right. Uh, but when they searched the houses of the afflicted, they found only one common food item. Every victim had consumed bread because you know France from the same <laughs> baker. Samples of the bread were taken and sent to Marseille. When the results of the analysis uh, Marseille. don't care, <laughs> Marcellus. <laughs> when the results, when the results of the analysis were completed, it showed that the bread had about twenty different alkaloid poisons, and they all came from the same source, the mm-hmm. ergo plant, due to a farmer who had grown a crop that he didn't want to lose money on who had found a miller that was willing to grind his infected crop. The miller sold that flour to a baker who knew it was infected. And basically these three con men mass infected this whole French town and led to almost 40 cases. Wow. But dude, I mean, this was like early FDA stuff. That's so awesome. So let's talk about how this ergo fungus changed from a massive outbreak disease inspiring medieval paintings to a medication we still use today. There's two different things that we already talked about with ergo, but the main thing I'm going to focus on is its vasoconstrictive effect. So despite its aggressive and deadly symptoms, As early as the 1500s, midwives were making use of these infected grains because they noted that pregnant sows or pigs that were fed, you know, bad batches of rye entered premature labor. Oh, oh, which is not what you want in a human. In anyone, really. I would think if you're in labor, you want to get that stuff done. (laughs) 
Yeah, you you well. So this is this is different. This is this is a person, well, a woman or a sow who is not in labor, and the the issue is that they go into labor before they should. So it was used to advance stalled labor, and the prescription from the midwives was basically three <laughs> three intact ergos collected directly from the field. So midwives. Yeah. Would prescribe ingesting three, uh, three intact ergos collected directly from the field, which would contain enough alkaloid to cause symptoms, but the dosage was restricted to a short period of time until active labor and birth. So somehow they figured out how to prevent gangrene by limiting the dose and exposure, which was about 0.5 milligrams of the utero active alkaloid. Now midwives weren't measuring this out in the 1500s, but this was the dose figured to be in about that many seed pods, as you call them. And that's the <laughs> same dose that obstetricians were using in the 1970s. The infected flower was stocked by pharmacies in the 1700s and called pulvis ad partum, or dust to create. And its use by medical providers began to escalate around the 1800s that described, you know, hey, this fungus can induce labor. And he said, I've seldom found a case that detained me more than three hours, and you'll be surprised with the suddenness of its operation. So make sure you're completely ready before you give it, or the baby could just slide out. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, okay. when the New World medical community, read America, adopted pulvis ad partum with enthusiasm, they failed to heed his warning about using it right at the second you're ready. And sure. as a result of impatience and poor judgment, there were a huge amount of stillbirths. Uh, oh, from wow. overuse, and then ergo became pul from pulvis ad partum to pulvis ad mortem, from the dust to create to the dust of death. Late in the 1900s, around 1935, the active ingredient ergometrin was purified, and that allowed a more precise dosage. Uh, and that was pretty much used to induce labors from the 1930s all the way up till the 1970s when oxytocin and methylergotamine were found and discovered and then used from that point on. Okay, okay. So it could be used to advance stalled labor and to some degree still was up until almost the 90s, the 1990s. The other use and the one that is still active today is for migraine headaches. And that's been since the mid-1800s. So... Santosh, what can you tell me about ergotamine and migraines? Yeah, so we use it not as a – they're preventatives that we try to use right now for migraines. That's the best way to treat migraines is to actually give either a daily medication or something like this for, for severe sufferers to actually have something that they basically stop the migraines from starting at all because – it's it's a very strange pathology that we don't fully understand, but basically you get initially vasoconstriction of the vessels feeding your brain and the covering to your brain. And then what you have is a sudden relaxation of those blood vessels and a dilatation, and you get what's called reperfusion injury, where that you know, it's starved for oxygen and starved, and then it gets flooded with blood. And you don't get a hemorrhage or something like that, per se, but that sudden flash of oxygen and nutrients after being deprived, that's what 
we think causes this flash of pain. So aside from the maintenance therapies, sometimes you get to the middle of a migraine and you need to do something right then and there. And, you know, we give fluids and we try to give different types of pain control, but sometimes you actually need to try and address the actual underlying pathology and actually attack the, uh, those dilated blood vessels. So you actually, you can infuse ergotamine as something that we call an abortive, where you abort the migraine headache, the attack at the time. So I don't know if you have to do this, Josh, but we actually have to, uh, we have to uh, admit our kids um, for ergo treatment and we have to bring them into the hospital. They need to be very, very closely observed because the side effect profile is kind of scary because you're, you're giving a vasoconstrictor. And, the side effect profile is basically yeah. where we – an overdose in these migraine medications is where we still see incidences of ergotism today. So from mass – casualties in the middle ages to isolated incidents of people in rural areas consuming infected grains, livestock right. consuming infected fields, or people accidentally overdosing on their medication. And it can lead to side effects similar to St. Anthony's fire, muscle pain in your arms and legs, sudden weakness of the limbs, numbness right. or tingling, or a blue colored appearance in your fingers or toes. Diagnosis is largely made by identifying the fungus in the wild there's no test that says this is 100% due to ergotoxin, and mm -hmm. there's no treatment aside from the vasodilation. There's nothing you can give to blow it out. You just have to avoid consuming ergo. So this is a disease that even though we have a pretty good understanding of, we're still largely helpless other than wait and see. Right. And that's actually the reason why if you use it as uh, an abortive for a migraine, you have to get people admitted. And you have to when you're giving the infusion, you have to watch them and monitor them very closely. They have to be bed bound, right? So you can't let people walk around while they're getting er er ergotamine treatment for their migraine. And I'll say, Josh, in those kind of extreme cases, it does work. It actually stops the migraine. And then you have to give treatment afterwards in order to like rehydrate the person and observe them until the ergo gets completely out of their system. Um, but yeah, in that very acute thing, you're literally giving them a toxin, a poison in order to stop this, you know, uh, super dilatation of the blood vessels. And so you have to treat them like a poisoning victim. You have to be very, very careful. Now to end the episode, go back and look again at any of the temptation of St. Anthony paintings you found and view it in a new light. As you see long elongated limbs that could be burning, tingling or dropping off a sensation of limbs being torn or ripped from your body due to that ischemic vasoconstriction, hallucinations sure. or convulsions. All of this could be viewed in a new light as you're like, oh, this is what somebody suffering from ergo may have, uh, it may be a metaphorical representation of what they were feeling. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And if you want to talk about it either now or a little bit later, we can bring up some of the, the imagery that we often see in, you know, like Michelangelo's or Dali's or, or any of like the, the, the uh, Schongauer, any of these, like the, 
what the temptation actually looks like. Um, Cause there's some fun hallucinations here of like satyrs and centaurs and demons in a cave. So uh, I know this is an audio yeah. medium, but mm-hmm. home listeners go yeah. find a computer and simply look at any painting titled the temptation of St. Anthony after listening to this episode and tell us what you think. Yeah, yeah. And um can I can I just shout out a couple of like um like some hot points to kind of look for when you're cuz the the paintings are quite like complicated. There's a lot going on. In them. Give us your clinical artistic pearls before yeah. <laughs> we before we end for the day. There is there and to be very fair, I'm going through like wiki and stuff like that. So uh, Anthony's in the desert. He's trying to find Paul of Thebes, who's look. He said he's looking for a better hermit. He said, "Oh, Paul's a better hermit than me." So I don't gonna, like this hermit. I'm going to move to the next hermit down. No, 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 not like that. Like he's a better hermit than me. So for me to hermit better, I got to meet another hermit. Which is maybe he was already going crazy, Josh. <laughs> so, so he's out there. He runs into two creatures in the forms of a centaur, uh, half man, half horse, and a satyr, which is half man, half goat. And so these are, you know, demonic kind of creatures. And then when he was going through the desert, he said, I found the centaur creature of mingled shape, half horse, half man, who he asked about directions. And the creature tried to speak in an unintelligible language, but pointed with his hand one way. And then he found a satyr, a mannequin with a hooked snout, horned forehead and extremities like goat's feet. And this creature was peaceful and offered him fruits. And when Anthony asked who he was, he said, I'm a mortal being of one of those inhabitants of the desert whom the gentiles deluded by various forms of error worship under the names fawn satyrs and incubi i represent my tribe so this was a satyr kind of tempting him away from trying to find paul and then there were plates of silver and gold and then anthony tried hiding in in a cave to escape the demons that plagued him and there were so many little demons in the cave that anthony's servant had to carry him out because they'd beaten him to death and then there were hermits gathered which that's that's weird (laughs) there were hermits that were gathered around anthony's corpse to mourn his death and when they were warning him he was revived and then he said to the servants take me back in the cave and then he went in there and he called out to the demons he said come back you know you ripped me to shreds and then a bright light flashed and he said oh that's god's light that you know sent away the demons and that kind of thing so all of those type of things that he he talks about uh in his temptations got incorporated into these paintings and so you can look through a lot of these paintings and you can see all that little bit of imagery uh in in the various interpretations that these different artists kind of came up with um but they're they're busy paintings like there's a hell of a lot going on um josh i i did not realize this when you told me about it there's like 30 different like well-recognized temptation of saint anthony like separate paintings as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback you can reach us on facebook on squarespace on twitter on patreon anywhere podcasts are downloaded we'd love to hear your reviews your ratings and we would love for you to support us spiritually emotionally and financially 
Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. (laughs) With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.